this week on the Backtable Podcast. So I built up this expectation in my mind of the confrontation that would be that never took place because like, I just put the expectations on myself that are so high. And I think we all do that. That's how we ended up where we are. We have high expectations of ourselves, and that includes never running late. But you know what? It's okay. It happens. It happens to a lot of the best doctors. And one of my partners is fond of saying, do you really want to see a doctor that you're not going to have to wait for? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Our mission here is to bring you high-quality otolaryngology content that enhances your medical education and gives you answers to those burning questions that pop up in your day-to-day work. Uh, We accomplish this through provoking conversations with experts in the field, and we hope that you take this information and can apply it to your everyday practice. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT uh, at UT Southwestern here in Dallas. Ash, how are you doing today? So good, Gopi. Glad to be back in the swing of things. Podcast Saturday. Podcast Saturday. I can't complain. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We have a great show uh, with an awesome guest today. We have Dr. Bradley Block. He's an otolaryngologist practicing in New York with ENT and Allergy Associates. Dr. Block practices general adult and pediatric ENT with special interests in sinusitis, sinus headache, and pediatric and adult obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. Block also has his own podcast, Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He's already put out more than 150 episodes that started in 2018, and we are so happy to have him here today. He's here to talk to us about optimizing communication in an outpatient setting. Welcome to the show, Dr. Block. Brad, please. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. I've been a fan of the show. I've been learning a lot from the episodes that you guys have been putting out, really relevant stuff for my practice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad we were able to find a time to to get on each other's calendars. Can we um, start out with just having you tell us a little bit about you and yourself, your practice, uh, your podcast? Fill us in. So I'm I'm on Long Island, which is where I grew up. I never thought I'd end up back there about five minutes away from the giant mall in the middle of Long Island, but there I am. And I'm working for ET and Allergy Associates. I'm working for, I'm a partner there. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the practice, but we are the biggest ENT practice in the country. We're, I think, five times bigger than the second biggest ENT practice in the country. We're always looking for new talent. So if you're interested in coming to New York and checking us out, the physicians, we own the practice. We run the practice. And so we are as satisfied as you can be with the state of medicine right now. So we're all, we're all pretty happy with, with our lives and our practices. How many partners? So we have, I think, around 220 physicians, but almost 170 of them are partners. So the thing that separates us from a lot of other practices, and I didn't come on the show to plug the practice. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the attention of the show, but is that we have a clear path to full equity partnership. Like you join the practice and you say, you know, this is the amount of time that you're going to spend as an associate. This is what the expectations are. And if you meet all the expectations, then you become a partner with as much equity as someone who started the practice, with as much equity as me, who's been there for 10 years, right? So there's no like, well, you're going to be a partner, but kind of a partner, but not really. I'm still going to run the practice and you're still going to work for me, but maybe you'll make a little more money. I'm totally drinking the Kool-Aid of my practice. I'm a believer. That's great. Question for you with that model. Are the expectations attainable? Is there an attrition rate for when like a new person starts, like in terms of making to stay on that trajectory for full equity? We wouldn't grow at the rate that we're growing unless it was extremely attainable. 
it is. Yes, definitely. That's awesome. Good for you guys. And then one last question for you. Uh, with such a large practice, does everybody do general or do you kind of subspecialize within your group with um, 250 physicians? Is there like, you know, 50 peds people, 30 head neck people? Like, how does that work? We're mostly generalists, but we have a smattering of subspecialists within the practice. So we've got, we don't do that much head and neck, but, you know, we have otologists, we have rhinologists, we have peds, we have facial plastics. Uh, but the bulk of the practice is really general because that's what you see in private practice. And then we have these relationships we've we've worked out with the academics within our areas so that we can facilitate if we see a complex head and neck case that we're not comfortable treating, we can get them in pretty quickly to see someone in, in an academic center. That's great. And then one last question. Sorry, I'm just so curious. For your group, is it all otolaryngologists of the 250 physicians or is there certain, you know, allergy partners? You're right. It's ENT and allergy associates. So we're ENTs and we're allergists. So yeah, it's one, every office has an allergist and then the rest is ENTs and it might range from three ENTs to like eight ENTs in the given office. You know, we're in all five boroughs of New York. We're all the way out to the Hamptons. We're, you know, up a good hour and a half north of the city and into New Jersey well into New Jersey. So we're, we continue growing because people see how happy we are and they want a part of it. So we say, great, come join us. That's great. Well, and there's some sense of autonomy, it sounds like too. Oh yeah. Yes. I know we're here to talk about um, communication and outpatient setting, but before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more about your podcast, if that's okay. We obviously, we love doing it. Uh, we're a little bit newer than you are to the podcast room. Um, tell me a little bit about how you uh, started to do it. And I've been able to check out a several of your episodes. It's they're a little bit more broader in terms of on doctoring, but they're awesome. The latest one was on charting, which was I didn't know there was like a charting specialist. I think from Australia, maybe Western Australia she came from. She's wow, wow, that's impressive that you're able to pick up where in Australia she was from. But yeah, no, she practices in Canada, but she's from Australia. Yeah, she's really from Australia. But yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. Let's get into that. So it actually ties into the whole communication thing because what I noticed when I joined my practice is some of my partners were able to see patients a lot faster than me. And I just didn't understand why. Like, what am I doing wrong? What can I do to see my patients more efficiently without, and still leave them with a positive experience, you know, without just completely blowing off whatever problem that they're in for? Because that's, that's not how you grow practice. So I looked into communication strategies. And as it turns out, there was a ton for lawyers, for executives, for dating, so all these communication experts out there that are teaching people how to communicate. And when I was in medical school, and now I'm 10 years out from residency, so I'm 15 years out from medical school. When I was in medical school, you know, the big takeaway was when you're with a patient in the exam room, make sure you sit down because their experience is that the visit will be longer than if you're standing. I'm sure I learned more than that, but that was the key to making the visit maybe move along a little faster is not standing up. Fine. But there's so much more out there. So how could I get access to these people? Well, I can't just call them up and ask them questions, right? Because I'm just some random person. Oh, but if you have a podcast, then you can call up strangers and ask them questions. So that's what I, that's what I started doing. And then for those of you who are interested in starting a podcast, you have to realize that you have your entire life surrounded yourself with people who are now experts right? You guys call up people that you knew from your training and you're like, would you like to do a show? And then once the show has gotten started, 
Now you've got momentum. Now you have people contacting you saying, you know what? I'd love to do a show on this or that. So you could always start out with your friends who are experts. Like my third episode was with the program director of GI in University of Rochester because I went to medical school with her. Like one of my episodes was with my brother who has a, actually we've done a bunch of us. He has a PhD in health policy. He worked on Obamacare and now he's a professor at New York Medical College. So if you have an idea for a podcast, just think like, why would someone want to listen to me? Well, they might not want to listen to you, but you have access to people who they might want to hear. And that's, that's how it got started. Yeah. And I, I feel like everybody's got similar questions. You know what I mean? Like getting inside the way somebody thinks about whether it's health policy, charting to, you know, voice patients. It's a cool perspective to see or hear about and people's experiences. Yeah. If you have those questions, someone else is inevitably going to have the same questions. Exactly. I relate to that a lot. Like, I feel like that was our big motivation for having a podcast. It's like, I just want to learn. I just just want to create my own little classroom and, and, uh, you know, learn from people. Yeah. And it's great for the rest of us because we get to download your podcast and listen to it on a commute. And now I am staying up to date, you know, because I get home. I've got three kids. The oldest is five and a half. The youngest is two. So we've got another one in the middle. They're all boys. So they're active. Oh man. I have two boys and they're active. Yeah. So then when I'm done, I'm exhausted. Like, do I really feel like picking, but they're not white journal and read. Yeah. They're not, but they're not exhausted. No, it doesn't. No, it it doesn't work that way. It's boundless, boundless, you know, boys or girls, the energy is just boundless. Yeah. So you guys give now give me an opportunity to make sure I'm staying up to date. I'm driving, I'm listening, I'm paying attention, I'm learning and it's, and it's great. And so that's what I have with my podcast as well, but my podcast is more focused on anyone who practices medicine should be able to take something good away from most episodes. So like you said, the last one, uh, I'm not sure when this episode's coming out, but the last one that I put out relative today was on charting to help you not go home, still having charts to do, right? That's almost all of us, but a lot of them are on those soft skills, nonverbal communication, breaking bad news having a sense of humor. I got the founder of The Onion I interviewed on my podcast on how to be funny. And actually, it's apropos that we're recording this on 9-11 because one of the things that I spoke to him about on the on the podcast was they put out an Onion newspaper two weeks after 9-11 and it was making jokes about what happened. And I said, how, you know, how did you, how did you do that? Because we're, you know, we're seeing patients with, you know, their their quality of life is is upset because chronic sinusitis, or they were just diagnosed with a head and neck cancer, or, you know, uh, for, for Gopi, a, a kid that might need a uh, complex airway surgery, right? Like we're dealing with some really heavy stuff. Is there a role for humor? So he, yes, yes, there is. This is how you do it. So yeah, I love podcasting. I love calling up people and speaking to people like you and then coming away a little, little better for it. Yeah, no, we, we get it. It's reciprocated and let's get into it. Okay. So Let's talk about uh, optimizing communication in the outpatient setting. When we first start, you know, the idea that how are my partners seeing or getting through their clinics so much more efficiently? I felt, and I still feel that way. It was definitely much more probably my first five years. And I don't know if I've just like accepted the way in which I run a clinic is just going to be different than maybe my colleague or partner, but that feeling, that sense So I guess just to kind of, before we even get into that, who are we focusing on? Are we just focusing on the patient who comes to the clinic? In pediatrics, we have, you know, parents that come with obviously the child. 
Is there a certain way you prep your clinic staff? So tell me, tell me who are the players when we're thinking about communication in an outpatient visit? So, the, I mean, the player is the doctor, the patient, the parent. My staff, that's like a whole other episode because within my practice, I've actually started something called the Patient Experience Committee. So we have committees that advise the board who runs the practice. So I started the Patient Experience Committee in order to be an advocate for the staff because the better the staff experience, the better the patient experience. So my, for instance, my medical assistant has been with me for years now and she knows the way I like to do things and she does help the flow considerably. You know, a patient needs an audiogram. There's, oh, there's no room. The audio is okay. Let's go talk to the audio. They're waiting for me. So get them their audiogram first. You know, she does things to, to help things move along. So, so taking the time to train your staff in order to help things move along is going to be important. So they are an important part of the team. But when you're in the room with the patient, yeah, it's the patient. And then whoever the caregiver is, whether it's a kid or it might be an adult, if your patient is a, a male and their significant other is in the room, you're probably going to need to give that significant other a lot more attention because as a male, I can say we're not to be trusted with our own healthcare and you need to speak to us sometimes like we're children and repeat things many times and ask the significant other because like, oh, honey, what did the doctor say? Oh, he said I was fine. That's not what I said at all. So yeah, there are a bunch of different, different players in the room. And one thing that I made a mistake about early on that I had to correct was that they knew who I was when I walked in the room. You made an appointment to see Dr. Shaw. So when Dr. Shaw walks in the room, you would expect they know that Dr. Shaw is their doctor. No, they may not have made their own appointment. And I don't, I just want to tell you, Brad, I don't look like you. And being a small brown female does not help them make that association. So you're right, that introduction, making sure they know who you are. So they felt like they've at least spoken to the physician at, you know, in their visit or in the OR or in the hospital, whatever it is. Uh, that introduction is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I am a, you, can, you can't see it because it's a podcast. I am a white male. I am like a khaki shorts with sandals and socks, white male. So <laughs> yes, you would think, but no, they don't. A lot of them didn't make their own appointment. So you have to introduce yourself at the beginning of the visit. So you identify yourself as, as the doctor. Certainly for women of color, it is even more important that you make that introduction. But to that end, you're more aware of it because of your experiences, unfortunately. Yeah. So you make your introduction and when you're making your introduction, how do you do it? How do you introduce yourself? And I've found the best way to do it is to, hi, my name is Brad Block. You can call me Brad. You can call me Dr. Block. How would you like me to refer to you? And so this gets into if the patient wants to be more formal or less formal, but it also gets into how they identify, right? So for our trans patients, for example, someone who may not identify as what you would maybe expect them to by looking at them. This takes all of that out of the picture and allows them to tell you how they want to be referred to. But it doesn't make it any, you know, it's still a smooth way of starting the visit. Hi, I'm Brad Block. You can call me Brad or Dr. Block. How would you like me to refer to you? And then they can, they drive the ship. I like that. How long have you been doing that? What did you start, you know, making that part of your practice? So I started it after my episode with someone who gives care to the LGBTQ community. It was probably like a year or a year and a half ago is when we did that episode. And yeah, it's easy. It's an easy transition. You know, you do it a couple of times and then it just becomes your habit. Yeah. I definitely have noticed if I, um, sometimes if I don't say doctor somewhere in my introduction, like if I say, Hey, I'm Ashley Agan. How can I help you today? We'll get halfway through the visit. They'll be like, wait, are you the doctor? So I have to make sure that I kind of put that somewhere, even though like 
something feels weird about me walking in and saying, I'm Dr. Ashley again. Like, you know, hey, how you doing? But I like the, you know, you can call me, you can call me Brad, you can call me Dr. Block. That kind of makes it a little less stuffy, I think. Yeah. And I like the idea of flipping the question back to the patient as well um, without it being a quote, you know, thing, which it shouldn't be. So I think that's great. So you do that. Okay. So a proper introduction, the first minute you walk in the door, every time identifying who you are, what else do you do? Like at every visit that you feel is important. Wash my hands. In front of the patient, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 No optics, especially in the age of COVID, you know, a lot of it is like, oh, we're going to close the school every Wednesday to sanitize it. Yeah, because that makes a difference for COVID, right? A lot of it is optics, but optics matter. Optics matter. So even though it may seem like theater, like you're doing that, no, but I wash my hands, they're clean. No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. All of this plays into the patient's experience and their perception of what's going on because their perception is the reality of, of what's going on. So another thing that I make sure that I do in every visit or I try to, right, it's going to make it seem like I'm some like Yoda of the uh, of patient communication here. These are things that I try to do in every visit, but I certainly don't, is acknowledging the patient's experience. Like if they're coming in with ear pain, right? Ashley, how many times have you seen ear pain since the start of the pandemic, right? Like everyone's, everyone's got bruxism. So everyone's got TMJ and they're all coming in and think they've got chronic ear infections and they come in with So, oh man, that sounds like it really hurts. That sounds like it's really uncomfortable or they're coming with dizziness. Oh, that sounds, that really sounds uncomfortable. Something to acknowledge the discomfort that they're experiencing. And it takes a second. It takes a second to just say that. And it really can change the arc of the visit because now you're acknowledging the discomfort there. And you're not just trying to solve it, but you're acknowledging their experience. And I think that's really improves their experience overall. Yeah. Can we go back to the hand washing? This might be kind of a a silly question. Do you think that washing your hands with soap and water is different than hand sanitizing uh, before the exam or, you know, in every room? Do you think there's a difference between those in terms of optics? We're not talking about like (laughs) in terms of standards, but just in terms of optics. (laughs) <laughs> we know the CDF versus not, okay, we get it, but just, you know, patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in an outpatient setting, I'm, I'm in an ENT, I hope you're not bringing CDF. I don't know what your exam is like, but. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. So I wash my hands instead of using the hand sanitizer, even though it would be faster to use the hand sanitizer. And I think, I think the optics of that are better because the hand sanitizer is faster. So it may seem less thorough or a little rush to the patient. The thing is when you're washing your hands, you can continue the conversation with the patient. So even though it is a couple seconds longer, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that the visit itself is taking that much longer. So a good opportunity also to chit chat with the patient, you know, cause you're not recording. So if your habit is to take a history and document while you're taking the history and then you stand up to do your exam and you're washing your hands, then you could ask them like, oh, well, do you have any plans for the weekend or something like that? Like the, the, the schmoozing part of it, which is important, right? This is part of the trust building. This is when this is, if you do things like that, this is the patient that's going to want to send their family to you. Why? Because they think that you generally care about them. So it also, for me, makes the visit a little more enjoyable, especially those earwax patients where you're spending a long time Taking that wax out like this, that's a great opportunity to chit chat. Also, that chit chat sometimes gives you information that leads you to the diagnosis for patients that might be in for something a little more um, elusive. 
What is your typical office chit chat? Like talk about the weather, talk about weekend plans or. Yeah. uh, You know, if there's a holiday that's coming up or that just passed or, you know, coming in off the weekend is Mondays and Fridays are easy. What'd you do? You know, what are you going to be doing? Uh, I have a lot of recurring patients. And so I can ask them about their family. Something that I do is if, if a name looks familiar or a patient looks familiar, I'll look up their address in our EMR and I'll see if I've seen any of their family members. That's always a good one. I, ah, it kills me. It kills me when I see someone for like, as a new patient, I'm like, oh, it's nice to meet you. And they're like, you took my kid's tonsils out three weeks ago. Yeah. Siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a big, huge event for them. It was your fifth tonsillectomy that day, but for them, it was a huge life event. So yeah, I I hate that. I try to do that with siblings too. Like, you know, Johnny, five-year-old, and I'll put in parentheses, big brother of Sarah, you know, or something just so that because you're right, I've walked into that multiple times because of, you know what I mean? And so it, it's it's a tough one. But if you do ask, this doctor really cares about me, then, you know, this is the, this is the patient that's going to go on, you know, Long Island parents Facebook group. And when someone says, does anyone know a good ENT? They're going to be like, oh, you have to go see this person. You know, you're, 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 for me, in addition to just being part of this monster practice that does marketing and the Facebook groups have been one of my biggest sources of patients because you get a couple evangelists and every time they see that they're going to mention your name yeah well and it's also nice when you have families that you're seeing siblings or the husband and the wife it's nice to kind of have an idea of how that family works or how they receive health care what their relationship with their physician or what you has been in with other members and so it kind of to me helps me know how I'm going to manage the patient as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like this parent. Yeah. I've had parents come in and they're like, my other three kids have all had tubes. So this kid's got one ear infection. Can you just put the tubes in? Yeah. You're like, uh, <laughs> you're like, no. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you just wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then you, then, you know, the conversation is going to be, oh, you've been through this before, so you know what to expect. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about the nonverbal communication. You know, you told us about how, you know, in medical school, they teach us all to sit down, sit, you know, gives you that feeling of like the visit being longer. Um, Is that enough? What other nonverbal types of communication kind of help round out the the experience? So there's there's your nonverbal communication and then there's the patient's nonverbal communication. And I would warn you to not try and overinterpret the patient's nonverbal communication because there are cultural you know, this is where we need cultural humility, not cultural competence. You need to know what you don't know. So, so one for the patient's nonverbal cues, I would warn you not to try and over interpret what's going on there. Or if you are ask, because you may be misinterpreting what's going on. I think the focus of our nonverbal communication needs to be, like you said, on ourselves and what we're doing rather than what the patient's doing. So for ourselves, there's all this information that, oh, 80% of communication is nonverbal. And if you've ever watched a movie in a foreign language, you know, that's completely not true. You cannot follow the plot of 80%. That's, that's garbage. Unless that's a Bollywood film and there's a lot of singing and dancing. <laughs> that you might be able to follow. They're clearly all very happy right now because there's a big festive dance happening. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so for your own nonverbal communication, you really don't have to focus on a lot. You don't have to focus on what your arms are doing or what your legs are doing or because that's going to end up distracting you. Most of the nonverbal communication that you need to focus on really need to be in the top half of your face, which is fortunate because we're all wearing masks right now. And so 
when patients, and this is going to seem really contrived and forced, but it's not. When you're listening to the patient, really use your eyes to express that you are paying attention or concerned or surprised. If you're just stone-faced and nodding the whole time, then it seems like you are ignoring everything that they're saying and you're not actually listening. Right? That person's not listening. But like the furrowed brow, really, again, it seems forced, but it conveys to them that you're really thinking, you're really paying attention. When I'm in the exam room and also when I'm behind the mic at, at podcasting, my personality, I try to turn it up as much as I can. In real life, I'm actually pretty subdued. May seem hard to believe. You're right. Your podcast personality, when I was listening, it's very passionate and engaged. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. At, at like a level to, it's awesome. I was like, I can't, this is good. Yes. I'm excited. It's yeah. Because if you're listening to someone that doesn't, that doesn't work. And it's the same thing in the exam, right? The patient's going to be uh, more engaged if you're more engaged. And so, you know, being a little more animated about it and really just focusing your nonverbal cues on the upper half of your face, right? There's that. And then the other thing is you can't fake being engaged. You need to actually be engaged for the patient to, and you do need to position your computer in a way that it's less of a barrier between you and them. And that's going to be a lot of style, right? How you decide to do this, how, what works best for you rather than doing it the Brad Block way of doing it. I mean, my particular way of doing it is it, it's a mix of, you know, typing, like maybe keep the computer a little off to the side. I dictate some of it so that they repeat back what they, what they need to say, but you know, that you're going to have to repeat back what they've said to me so that it acknowledges that I've listened and I actually can, this is why I like dictating sometimes is, especially if they've given a, a complex history on someone who's dizzy, where they come at you with all this different information in completely non-chronological order. But this actually, this is another thing. Patients tend to give their history in terms of urgency and not chronological order. So a lot of times I have to say, listen, I know this is the way you want to tell the story, but it's not that you put the onus on you. This is not the way my brain processes it. So in order for me to best help you, I really would prefer it if you tell the story in, in chronological order. So, but again, you're going to have to figure out how to, how to work it so that the computer is not as much of a barrier as it, as it might be. But don't worry about what your hands are doing and what your legs are doing and what everything else is doing. Just focus on the upper half of your face and focus on the patient because you can't feign interest. Yeah. Just really be interested and present in what you're doing and it, sh it will come naturally, right? And I love that word present because whenever I learned it in medical school, it's like, make sure you're listening to your patient. Make sure you're listening, 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 listening. Yes. But I think a better way to say that is be present. Like don't be distracted, which actually that's something that the charting coach that I interviewed brought up. She's like, a good way to be efficient is close out your chart before you go to the next patient. I know easier said than done, but that actually helps you not be distracted by these other things that are going on in the back of your mind. So you close them out, you close them out of the back of your mind. Now you can focus even more on the patients in front of you. And that actually helps that visit go faster because you're able to process the information better. And also the patient feels like they don't need to repeat themselves as much. They feel that presence. So being present, you know, is I think a better way to put it than make sure you're listening. It's more abstract. The listening is, I think, more abstract. And so like, can we talk about humor? Because I think humor is so important. I love humor. I liked the onion in college. You know, it's something that I think that is used to help us get through difficult times as well as to point out maybe whether it's injustices or observations that we make in life, funny things that we see. 
And to me, that's, I, I know this, that's probably kind of like the cherry on top, but how have you used humor? Is that something that you're always doing in your patient visits or when do you feel like humor is utilized? I try to do it. I try most of the time, although admittedly, I sometimes misread the room and you end up using it inappropriately. So if you're going to use humor, you have to also be able to, to save it. I think a, a great example of humor in medicine, I'm sure you guys follow him, uh, Glockham Flecken, the ophthalmologist. He's got these amazing TikToks and something that's important that he does extraordinarily well is he never punches down, right? Never, ever makes fun of the patient, ever. So that's something that I learned from Scott Dickers, who was the founder of The Onion. He said, the role of humor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So you can make fun of your institution. You can make fun of healthcare. You can make fun of someone in a position of power. You can make fun of the disease process itself somehow, right? Like, but you can never, never, ever punch down. Never, ever. Um, the patient is never, ever, ever the, the, the butt of the joke. So that's, I think, critically important. We do the same things over and over and over and over again when we see our patients. And the way I see it is like a stand-up comic. Before the stand-up comic does their HBO special, what do they do? They go to the, the clubs and they try their material and they try their material, they try their material over and over until they really have their shtick down. And that shtick still continues to evolve over time. So we're, we do the same thing. So you can try new jokes, right? Try new things. One, things that, one thing that I say with my sleep apnea patients is, okay, we, we do home sleep studies now. So we're going to, we got to get it approved by insurance. And then we're going to send something to your house and you're going to put it on. And we're also going to send someone that's going to watch you in your sleep. And then I wait a second to see how they react to that. And then, oh no, I'm just kidding. We're just getting it. You know, that always, but I use that every single time, right? Every single time I end up using the same jokes. So you just, you can experiment and fire your jokes. So let's say you make a joke and it bombs easily saved. It's a good thing. I'm a doctor and not a comedian. I will not quit my day job, right? So you can make fun of yourself. That's another thing. You can definitely make fun of yourself, but I think a, a line that you shouldn't cross with that is you should never make jokes about your competence because they're here to see you for your competence. And if you use self-deprecating humor about your own competence in medicine, fine. Competence in the computer, competence in scheduling, something else, fine. Competence in medicine, don't because that's going to erode some of their trust in you. So there's a couple of lines you don't want to cross, but aside from that, you know, make sure that you're, whenever you're making a joke, you're, you know, making fun of the system. You're somehow punching up. No, I like that. And I like uh, using every clinic visit as a uh, stand-up comedy session too. I'm going to talk to Mitchell about that. I love it. Well, no, there's earwax patients where you're just sitting there and you're just, you know, chatting away. It's a great opportunity. Potatoes are coming yeah, out. Exactly. Yeah. Especially with the kids. Yeah. With the kids, you can always make, you could just be super silly with them. And they, you know, they love it. So switching gears a little bit, talk to us about communication when you have a situation where things uh, are not going in the direction that you you hope, or you have a disgruntled patient that's been, you know, in the waiting room for an hour or, you know, kind of the unhappy patient situation. How does communication help you in that? So there are a couple of different unhappy patients. Some of those patients are patients that feel like they really haven't been heard and listened to. And I think with them, it's what I call the question behind the question, right? They're asking you something, but then there's this underlying concern. And this is another thing that you guys had asked me at the beginning of the show, what's something that you try to do with each visit? I try to ask, what about this concerns you? And like for our globus patients, right? Ashley, you see that I'm sure a lot more than, than Gopi does. No, I don't care to see that. I'm kidding. Kidding, guys. Happy to see anything. The globus throat clearing patient 
you know, their, their concern might be this throat clearing is really disrupting my life or their concern might be, I just want to make sure I don't have throat cancer. And if they leave that visit without that having been said, they're going to still wonder, well, do I have throat cancer? Did they check me? No, everything looks fine. It's, you know, whatever, whatever, or maybe it's reflux or, but it's important to verbalize what they're concerning. And it's easy to get that out is just say, what about this worries you? And with those disgruntled patients, sometimes it's, they feel like the doctor has been addressing what the doctor wants to address, not what they're concerned about. You know, like a patient comes in with dizziness and they think it's a sinus infection. Like that's how that happens with me all the time. Like I am going down this path to try and figure out what I think is going on. And it's not what they think is causing it. So I haven't evaluated them for what they think is going on. So clearly I haven't been listening to them. So it's easy to turn that question around. What about this worries you? There's the patient who, and now it's not going to solve every difficult patient, but a lot of them that are like, you're just not listening. Like that'll help to maybe shake out what they're really concerned about. The patient who's been waiting too long in the waiting room, I am terrible at personally. I am terrible at because it's not my fault. You know, the patient before them was 95 and took forever to fill out their paperwork and showed up late and is not very mobile. So I'm not going to tell them, I'm sorry, you missed your appointment. You got to go home, right? I'm going to see them or the three month old whose parents are like overwhelmed because this kid isn't, well, it could be a perfectly healthy kid, but it's very overwhelming. It's their new, it's their first kid. And so they made it half an hour late. I'm not going to make them. So, you know, a lot of times it's not my fault. Doesn't matter. Why are they pissed? They're pissed because they feel like their time hasn't been valued. So you have to turn it around and tell them, listen, your time is really important to me. I'm really sorry. I do the best that I can. Some of this is out of my control and some of it, you know, I, I wish I could do better. I really apologize. You got to, you got to jump on your sword on those. And the more ownership, even the way I just said, it probably isn't the best way. The more ownership you can take of it and not blame your late patients is better. I need to do that better. But that's, they need to feel like they're valued because they've been waiting so long. Who did this doctor think they're, they are made, making me wait like this? You know, it seems like the power balance is we're way up here and they're down here. And so you need to help them to equalize that a bit. The other thing with that is communication. This is something that I'm actively working on my, my staff with. What I like to do is as patients are checking in, let them know how many patients are in front of them. So you can't tell them how long the wait's going to be because you never know what's going to be and you never know who's going to no-show for their appointment. So you need to tell them as much information as you have. So as they check in, Dr. Shah, there are currently three patients in front of you. Thank you. You know, thank you for your patience. And then when my medical assistant is picking up the next patient, she yells, Dr. Shah, you're next. So the more updates they have, the better. So you need to be proactive about the communication in order to prevent them from doing that but that's more work for the staff. So you also need to hammer it home to them that this is actually going to make their lives easier. They hate getting yelled at for stuff that isn't their fault. They hate getting yelled at. Everyone hates getting yelled at, but especially for something that's not your fault. So you need to tell them that this is going to prevent you from getting yelled at. Like this is going to make your life easier. So you need to make sure you do it and you, it needs to be reinforced and reinforced until it becomes habit. And then it's going to stop being habit. And then you need to reinforce it again. So you know, it needs to be part of the culture and you got to get buy-in from the other doctors in your office too, so that it's not just Dr. Agan, you know, if, if you do it, but she doesn't, you know, it's the inconsistency that's going to stop them from doing it. So you need to get the other doctors on your office on board with that type of communication too.
Yeah, a little a little acknowledgement goes a long way, I think. You know, even when I think about myself and if I have a bad experience at a restaurant or a- anywhere, just having somebody acknowledge like, "Hey, you know, I'm sorry that you've waited for forever." Like, usually that's fine. Like just to have somebody say, "You know, I recognize that this wasn't great, but but here we are now and let's move on." And I think for a lot of patients that um that's that's enough, you know, to kind of um get you over that that hump. And I love the setting expectations with as as far as like wait times and things like that. Because again, thinking about myself, if I know it's going to be an hour, I'll just kind of go get a snack or prepare myself or, you know, read a book. It's kind of, uh, I think that the unknown um, and not having any control over that can make people kind of anxious and antsy. My experience was the patients at home on telemedicine when we were doing telemedicine were more irate about waiting than the people in the waiting room. And you're like, you're at home. What are you talking about? <laughs> you could like do your work. You could have a position. Just you're watching TV, whatever. You're at home. What are you so upset about? But for whatever reason. Catch an episode of Ted Lasso real fast. I'll be right there. I have been a patient stuck on telemedicine at home for like 30 minutes. And you're home, but you're kind of stuck on the screen. Like you can't, you're not really free to like do anything because you're like, oh, if I walk away, then they're going to pop up. And so I think it makes the time go a lot slower because you're literally just <laughs> staring at yourself. <laughs> so, that watched pot. That yeah, was, the, the that, time yeah. moves slower, I think. All right, fair enough. Well, yeah, well, that's good advice because people are always telling me that it goes so fast with uh, raising your children. So if we want to slow down time, just, you know, wait on hold somewhere <laughs> and then slow down problem solved. All right, so this is a good segue to our last question. I feel like, I get into this cycle where I'm like 45 minutes to an hour behind and, you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm apologizing in every room I'm going to and I had to, and Ash and I talk about this because then it's like, well, now do I need to spend an extra five minutes? But then now I'm snowballing and here I am now an hour and a half later. What are things that we can do to try to stay on time or just kind of keep moving? How do we keep swimming, if you will? So one is, like Ashley just said, is setting expectations. So if you have a patient that comes in with four different problems, you might say, listen, and this is going to happen more in primary care than it, than it happens to us. Like generally there's, they're just one or two problems, but sometimes they just explode into seven different problems. You say, listen, I'm sorry, but the schedule is really templated for enough time for one or two problems. We can deal with the two that are most pressing to you right now. Or if like, if they've got some big neck mass, we say, okay, we can talk about your earwax because that's clearly important to you. But we also need to talk about this thick, big neck mass that's there. So you might need to manage that as well. Because sometimes what they think is more important isn't actually what's more pressing medically, but they need to have a say. So sometimes you need to limit them in terms of how many issues that you can address. But, you know, using a lot of the things that we talked about earlier today, you know, acknowledging the discomfort they're in, you know, finding out what really worries them about it, giving them your undivided attention because you've closed out your previous charts. These things can help to limit the time that you spend and, you know, that nonverbal communication, really focusing on them, making it look like you're actually focusing on them, even though you might be, again, optics matter. So all of these things I think are additive to cutting a minute or two out of each visit. So they, them still feeling like they're getting excellent care. So I don't really have any more advice on top of that to, to move things along other than the, the things that we already addressed in the office on top of just maybe triaging and limiting the problems and setting the expectations. Another thing is if you have a patient that's still 
you know, asking questions and asking questions, and asking questions, you say, you know, I'm sorry, we do have a couple of, the, of people that are waiting around. Sometimes they don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize that they are repeating the same questions over and over or how much time they're actually taking. And that's taking away from other people's time. So listen, I, I'm really sorry. If you do have more questions, I'll give you a call later. We can talk about it after hours. Because like you said, running late tends to snowball. Now you feel like, you know, the patient that could have been, oh, it's just a tonsillectomy post-op check. This is two minutes, but they've been waiting for an hour. It could have been a two minute visit. Then you give them more time because you feel like you need to give them more time because they've been waiting for not even later. The other thing is, again, your staff helping your staff. Like the other day, my, my medical assistant was like, I know this patient's later, but they're just here for X. So why don't we get them in first? Great. Like they have it, making sure your staff has their, fi- your, their finger on the pulse of the schedule, or even you going into your schedule beforehand and highlighting a couple of patients to your staff saying like, listen, this patient's going to be super fast. Let's bring them in. Although, you know, it's going to happen. They're going to have questions. They're, <laughs> they're going to talk. They're, gonna, they're yeah. not going to be and it's going to totally screw up your schedule. <laughs> yeah. And at some point you got to have to bite the bullet and be okay with being behind. So a little personal note, I actually started therapy for a little while this year. And one of the things that I brought up with the therapist was that I would be prepared for the patients to be like yelling at me when I walk into the room late and I would show up with my fist clenched, just ready to like get in some. And then a lot of times I walk into the room and they were like, oh no, I totally get it. So I built up this expectation in my mind of the confrontation that would be that never took place because like I just put the expectations on myself that are so high. And I think we all do that. That's how we ended up where we are. We have high expectations of ourselves, and that includes never running late. But you know what? It's okay. It happens. If it, do- it, it happens to a lot of the best doctors, and one of my partners is fond of saying, do you really want to see a doctor that you're not going to have to wait for? <laughs> That's a great line. I love that. Oh, and the last thing, the last thing is the patient is the star of the show, not you. So stop talking about yourself so much, because this a lot of time eats into the, I hear my partners doing it because our walls are pretty thin. The doctors that sometimes run the most behind are sometimes the doctors that are talking about themselves or they're talking because they feel like it needs to be said, even though the patient's really not listening or that's not their concern or that's like, are you talking for you now or are you talking for your patient? Because you might be able to do a lot less talking than you realize if you can acknowledge what the patient's experience is. Is this something that I'm saying? Because I want to say it or because they need to hear it and it's actually beneficial to them because you might be dragging things on longer than they really need to. And again, stop talking about yourself. Little little bits about yourself are fine because that actually builds trust. I'm going to give you a little bit of something about myself so that you feel comfortable giving me a little bit of something about yourself. That's fine. Anything beyond that, not fine. Stop talking about yourself. You're not the star of the show. Well said. Well put. Is there anything that we haven't asked you? Anything, any final pearls or and we've we've kind of hit a lot of different areas of communicating with the patient. I think there's a lot of really good um, take-home points here. No, I think I you guys covered all the things that I think it's important to talk about. That you know when I when I was a resident, we spent four days in the operating room and one day in the office. And now as a private practitioner, I'm four or four and a half days in the office and half a day or one day in the operating room. So I spend so much time in the office. It's important to make it move along and make it enjoyable. So a lot of these things that you end up doing make it less stressful, 
and more, more enjoyable. And that's really what I'm trying to work on with the podcast and help other people to do as well. Cause in, in ENT, yeah, you trained as a surgeon, but there's a lot of clinic. <laughs> well, in private practice, we don't call it clinic. We call it office hours. There's a lot of office hours. <laughs> clinic implies that it's like, like a very different setting than, uh, that, that little ref- little reframing there. Clients and not patients. I'm just kidding. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you so much, Brad. We appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Uh, again, learned a ton. Thank you to our listeners for joining in. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We would love feedback for topics, ideas, speakers, and if you ever want to come on the show. And please, please, please check out Dr. Block's podcast, The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. It's multidisciplinary. Lots of different physicians come on. Great topics and super, super fun to listen to. Thanks so much. And Brad, is there a, um, if people want to get in touch with you, are you on social media or LinkedIn, Instagram, any any sort of um, best way to reach you? I am. So you can find the podcast on the same podcast players that you guys are on. Or you just go to physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. That's my website. It's basically just a jumping off point for the podcast. I'm on Twitter, at Physician's Guide. I'm on Instagram, barely, at Physician's Guide. Um, and then I have a page on Facebook and LinkedIn. But ultimately, those are just for posting episodes. I'm not really active on those sites. I guess of all of them, Twitter, I'm, I'm the most active on. Awesome. Well, thanks again. We appreciate it. Thank you. Until next time. Bye, everybody. It's a wrap. <laughs>